Well, actually, I'll go a bit narrower than that because this is a, a huge field. So I'll um, I'll stick to the the gospels. Um, otherwise, we'd sort of be here to the cows that came home. Um, and it's also one of those areas where, of course, new stuff keeps getting uh, dug up. So I uh, occasionally go back to a biblical archaeology review and science daily and things to look up uh, what's going on and include some new things. And then I have to think, well, what am I going to drop out in order to keep the talk shorter? Um, so uh, this, of course, comes with a caveat that I'm not an expert in this. This is just a, uh, an interest uh, of mine. Uh, and I read quite a few uh, books on the subject and so on and try and keep abreast of developments. Um, in archaeology, it's always useful to remember that an absence of ev evidence for something is not evidence of its ab absence. It probably just means someone's living on top of it now and doesn't want you digging their house up so you can find it. Um, but where we uh, do find uh, finds that are dug up that corroborate uh, what's in a text, like the Gospels, uh, if that keeps happening... Uh, you uh, tend to uh, sort of build up uh, uh, a positive uh, influence upon your assessment of the reliability of that text, even in those cases where you can't directly corroborate, corroborate it. Um, and archaeology can provide evidence into a number of sort of different aspects of, of things here. It can uh, fill in the cultural background that we were just talking about, uh, including people's <laughs> beliefs and practices. It can uh, support information about particular places, even down to particular buildings, and uh, also some information about people, uh, names, even particular individuals, titles that people have referred to in sort of government hierarchy and so on at the right time, uh, relationships between people even sometimes when we come on to looking at um, some of the archaeology of burials of people. Uh, let's start with a, a few things looking at culture. Um, I'm going to a little section here on Dan Brown's The Da Vinci Code that some of you may have heard uh, before, um, where the character Professor Tebing uh, goes on about how Jesus was established as the Son of God only at the uh, Council of Knights here, which took place in 325 AD, and kind of before that he was just a, just a bloke, and then he kind of got divinized in the 4th century, uh, which is a load of baloney, and I can prove it using just archaeological discoveries. Um, this is a wall painting uh, from, uh, dated from about 235 AD, so 100 years before the Council of Nicaea. And the interesting thing about this wall painting is that it clearly uh, depicts uh, the incident of Jesus healing the paralytic. And it's kind of a, uh, uh, one of these pictures that has different elements of the scene all going on in the, in the same frame here. Uh, so this is Jesus uh, pointing to the paralytic on his bed, and here is the paralytic having been healed, carrying his bed, with a rather sort of wooden literal interpretation of, of the bed. Uh, it's a big, this big frame bed that the poor guy is uh, stumbling under, uh, rather than a sort of roll-up mat, probably be more culturally uh, sensible. But here we are, this is a, a 3rd century AD painting uh, from uh, catacombs, I think, in Rome. Um, but the important thing, of course, about this story, which is clearly being referenced there, when you look at Mark's Gospel, is it's the one where we have Jesus claiming to be able to forgive sins. He's blaspheming who can forgive sins but God alone. So this idea uh, that um, Jesus didn't think of himself as design, that was just sort of forced on him by the church in the 4th uh, century, 
Um, while that doesn't really seem to stand up uh, to this uh, archaeological reference to this story from Mark. Just a little bit earlier than that, from about 230 AD, a recent uh, discovery of a Christian prayer hall uh, near uh, Medigo here. This is the Sea of Galilee, this is Nazareth, here's Medigo. And we have a sort of reconstruction of what this prayer hall would have looked like. And what's been recovered is basically the, the floor here of these mosaics around uh, the central table, which would have been for communion. Uh, and you have some very interesting things in this uh, mosaic. Here's a closer-up picture of that. First off, you'll notice the fish uh, in the middle of this mosaic here, which is, of course, an early Christian symbol. The, the word fish in Greek, ichthus, uh, was used as an acrostic uh, for the letters standing for, in Greek, uh, Jesus Christ, Son of God, Saviour. Son of God, a Christian fish symbol. Um, so there's uh, an indication of people thinking of Jesus as the Son of God by 230 AD. But actually even more significant is this uh, inscription on the other side of the room here. And there's a close-up of it here for you. And it, it reads, when you translate it, The God-loving Acaptus has offered the table. I, this is an inscription from someone who's funded the table in the middle of the room. Um, Godling of Acceptus has offered the table to the God Jesus Christ. To the God Jesus Christ. This is known as the uh, Alaxaminos Graffito. It may not surprise you to know that graffito is Latin for graffiti. It's a unique piece of wall graffiti from near the uh, Palatine Hill in Rome. And it seems to be rather vaguely dated by the archaeologists. I've seen dates ranging from the first century. Uh, AD, but as late as the 3rd century AD, but that's still before the Council of Nicaea. And uh, we have here a picture probably uh, scrawled by one bored Roman soldier taking the mick out of another Roman soldier uh, where they were uh, based. And we have a picture here of a crucified man with a donkey's head, so he's an, he's an ass. And uh, a picture of a man here looking up at the figure on the cross and a bit of writing which says, uh, Alexaminos worships his God. So, indications there uh, from a hostile source that there were people uh, in, well, sometime before the Council of Nicaea, certainly worshipping Jesus as God. Um, so you can thoroughly debunk the whole uh, Da Vinci Code idea just from looking at archaeological discoveries without uh, going to written texts, which, you know, the boundary of what you count as archaeology and what you count as reading the history, that's a bit blurry. It depends what you mean by Johannan. Uh, Keith said that I would uh, mention something briefly about the archaeology of crucifixion. Uh, this was a discovery from 1968, uh, where there was a burial site uncovered and there were many bodies, but one of them, uh, in a stone uh, ossuary or bone box with his name written on the side here and so on. This is the contents, part of the contents found inside. Uh, Johannan ben Hagagol, if I pronounce that correctly, um, who had a seven-inch nail driven through both of his feet and his uh, legs were, and this is a disputed, did they get broken later on or broken at the time of death? but the legs were, were crushed. 
in a blow that's consistent with the, the common Roman use of the crucifragium, which is breaking the legs of a crucifixion victim so they can no longer push themselves up in order to get breath on the cross, in order to hasten death. So it's uh, archaeological uh, evidence of people being crucified in the kind of way that Jesus was crucified and also given a decent burial, which uh, some scholars have said, you know, um, was uh, very unlikely. Jesus will probably just have been thrown into the common grave and his body eaten up by the, by the dogs or whatever. Um, but here's another instance, at least, of a criminal being crucified and given a burial uh, in that area. What about places in the Gospels? Well, this is a very recent find from 2010. This came up just in time for Christmas last year, actually, interesting enough. Uh, digging up of uh, a house from uh, Nazareth. According to the excavation director, uh, Yahardana Alexander, the discovery is of the utmost importance since it reveals for the very first time a house from the Jewish village of Nazareth and thereby sheds light on the way of life at the time of Jesus. The building that we found is small and modest, and it is most likely typical of dwellings in Nazareth at that period. And in another uh, press interview, uh, Alexandra said that uh, this may well have been a place that Jesus and his contemporaries were familiar with. It's a logical suggestion. So a first century uh, Jewish uh, house from Nazareth of Jesus' day. Capernaum, which gets uh, mentioned a lot, in the Gospels is one of, sort of Jesus' base of operations. 16 references to Capernaum in the Gospels, particularly uh, uh, Mark and Luke mention Jesus uh, teaching in the synagogue there. And this is what's uh, left there today. Now this, the brightly colored stuff, is a later synagogue built on top of the site of the synagogue from the Capernaum of Jesus' day. But this black basalt layer at the bottom here is the foundations of the synagogue from the first century day and they just built uh, on top of that uh, later reusing the foundations but um, there's going to show there was a synagogue there uh, in Jesus's day. Uh, Peter's house also in Capernaum. Now it's a one of these finds it's got a you can see sort of it's a bit strange this picture because they've built above it a sort of concrete 1960s structure that looks a bit like a UFO as a sort of viewing platform uh, for this house. Um, but it's the remains of an octagonal 5th century church. And then archaeologists discovered that the remains of an earlier church underneath that church uh, that had been built around, itself was sort of a church over a church over, built around what was originally a private house from Capernaum. Um, in one room of that house, they had signs that it had been used as a meeting place for Christians during the second half of the first century because the walls had been plastered and visitors had scratched various prayers mentioning the name of Jesus into the plaster work of this house. And the name of Peter is also mentioned there. And in the fourth century, we know that this, this kind of house church was then enlarged enclosed within the walls of its own compounds and at that time it was pointed out to an uh, early pilgrim such as the mother of the Emperor Constantine who mentions it uh, in about 380 AD and she says in Capernaum the house of the Prince of the Apostles has been made into a church with its original walls still standing it's where the Lord cured the paralytic going back to the painting we had earlier 
John uh, 5 uh, mentions a healing, um, describes uh, a pool in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate, uh, surrounded by five covered colonnades. And until the 19th century, this is one of those things that uh, liberal gospel critics like to, like to point to and say, look, there's no evidence of the existence of this pool with five covered colonnades in Jerusalem. Um, John's just making it up after the fact doesn't know what he's talking about. Um, here is the pool of Bethesda, which was then later, of course, dug up, uh, including, you can see here, some of the, uh, the colonnades that are around the, the pool. It's a whole sort of complex of uh, ritual bathing pools, and indeed there are five covered colonnades there. In 2004, uh, archaeologists stumbled upon what they are now confident is the first century ritual pool of uh, Siloam, mentioned in John 9. Uh, engineers were um, digging up some uh, uh, sewage works, and they uncovered some steps, which they gradually uncovered and found these steps led down to a, a pool. So it was a big sort of square thing with steps leading down to a, a bathing pool, um, which... Um, is fed by water coming out of Hezekiah's uh, famous tunnel from the Old Testament times, which I mentioned in my Old Testament archaeology talk. And um, they found things there, such as ancient coins and bits of pottery and so on, that, that date it uh, firmly to the time of Jesus. And uh, there's still some running water down there coming out of Hezekiah's tunnel. What about individual people? This is where it gets particularly fascinating, I think. If you could take, for example, just two verses from Luke in particular, who's uh, well known as a, a meticulous historian, particularly by ancient historians, uh, you just take Luke chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, and I have here, what, at least five different people who are mentioned. Uh, Luke is very concerned to place what he's describing in its historical context, and five different people and, and their, their titles are mentioned. So you have Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate, governor of Judea, Herod Tetrarch, which meant a governor of a quarter of a province, his brother Philip, um, mentioned by Josephus as well, uh, Licinius Tetrarch of Albany, uh, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the desert. So he's putting these names very particularly, and just to whip through, there's plenty of archaeology relating, or particularly, of course, to Tiberius uh, Caesar, uh, the Pilate inscription, which mentions uh, Pontius Pilate, um, Herod, uh, uh, various uh, bits of pottery that have uh, Herod the Great, King of the Jews, on them, uh, Herodium, Herod's uh, desert fortress, which uh, recently uh, archaeologists uh, discovered Herod's tomb at the base of Herodium. You can see Herod's tomb here in a partial reconstruction of his sarcophagus. Uh, Licinius. Uh, scholars at one time said Luke didn't know what he was talking about because everybody knew that Licinius was not a tetrarch, but rather the ruler of Calchas half a century earlier. Uh, but an inscription was, of course, later found from the time of Tiberius, which names Licinius as Tetrarch in Albia near Damascus. Just as Luke had said, it turns out there had been two government officials with the same name. Um, <laughs> Caiaphas, this is the ostery, the bone box of Caiaphas, uh, from his tomb in Jerusalem. 
and it's even uh, got on the back here, uh, Yosef Bar Caiaphas, is the son of Caiaphas. And on the subject of osseries, I'm going to have to be fairly quick on this. We have what seems good evidence that this is the bone box of Alexander of Cyrene, who was forced to carry uh, Jesus' cross uh, for a stage. And the Barsabbas family in Acts, we did say we'd mention Acts very briefly. There's uh, Joseph Barsabbas and uh, Judas called Barsabbas, both mentioned in Acts, and this character Matthias, when they're choosing a new uh, apostle to replace Judas. And in this uh, tomb, I'm going to quickly go through this. There was a, a number of different boxes, but with the combination of names on the bone boxes and the area and the ethnicity of the people, um, we've got a quote from an archaeologist here saying, um, the impact of these fascinating discoveries is multiplied when we consider the additional evidence found in the tomb, such as coins and artifacts that clearly show it was hermetically sealed less than a decade after the crucifixion of Christ. And this is years before any part of the New Testament was written, proving that the scriptures are consistent with the archaeological evidence, which does indicate, given the, the rarity of the names, the ethnicity and the combination, it's likely that these are uh, the Barsabbas family. And actually, it's interesting that one of them would seem to be Matthias. Although it's not referenced in Acts as being one of the family, that name is on one of the boxes in there as well. So maybe this Matthias, uh, which was... a uh, Hebrew construction uh, is also one of the Barsabbas family along with uh, Judas and Simon Barsabbas and so on and the James son of Joseph brother of Jesus Ossery there's been a lot of controversy about this and a whole court case about it in uh, Israel and so on I've got a book uh, on the bookstall about it and uh, that court case is now over and uh, you'll find a range of views on this but you'll certainly find some well credentialed people who would say that this is uh, most likely genuine. Uh, it's a first century AD chalk ossuary discovered in 2002, uh, which uh, has on it, uh, in the translation, James, son of Joseph, brother of Jesus. And it's unusual to mention uh, the brother rather than simply whose son you are on there. Uh, Herschel Shanks, who's the editor of the Biblical Archaeological Review Journal, uh, says, uh, argues in this book, he's co-written with Ben Witherington, this box is more likely the ossuary of James, the brother of Jesus, than not. In my opinion, it's likely that this inscription does mention the James and Joseph and Jesus of the New Testament. So that's a very quick sampling through of uh, some of the archaeological evidence that relates to culture and places and people mentioned in the Gospels and, very briefly, Acts. Thank you.